the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you the launch of a new World Bank ANU survey of Australian horticulturalists looking at the Pacific Seasonal Worker Program. The report was launched by Mr Axel van Trotzenberg, World Bank Vice President for East Asia and the Pacific, and it was discussed by a panel which included the report authors and government and industry representatives. Uh, So I'd like to welcome you all uh, to the launch of uh, our report today, Australia's Seasonal Worker Program Demand Side Constraints and Suggested Reforms. Uh, My name is Stephen Howes and I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre and uh, I'm also chairing uh, today's event. Uh, So before, or as our opening, let us acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians uh, on whose traditional lands we meet and uh, let's pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, So thank you very much everyone for coming today and uh, showing your interest in this uh, important topic. Um, This is something uh, we've been involved on uh, the Development Policy Centre for quite some time and uh, this is the second survey of employers uh, that we've uh, participated in and it's also a topic uh, the World Bank has uh, been working on uh, for a long time since their first report, uh, Home and Away. You know, now I think around 2007 or so. Uh, and it's good to see that it's a topic that uh, still attracts uh, a lot of interest. Uh, we've got a very uh, packed uh, schedule uh, for today. And in fact, uh, we're going to stretch it to 1.30 because uh, travel plans, as it turns out, permit that. And we do have uh, so many interesting speakers for you to hear from. So I hope you can stay until 1.30. If you have to leave beforehand, then uh, of course feel free to do so. Uh, So I'm not going to take up your time, I'm just going to explain the running order and then uh, sit down. I do have a slight conflict of interest, I'm also an author of the report, but uh, I'm going to mainly act today as the chair. I'm going to let Jesse, my co-author, do the presentation. We just thought with so many people, so many speakers, we'd avoid having one more by having a separate chair. So in a minute I'm going to hand over to Axel van Trotzenberg. Axel's the the Vice President of the World Bank. He's kindly agreed to, he's in Canberra, he's kindly agreed to be here today uh, to launch the report, and so we ask him to just say a few words uh, at the start. Uh, then I'll give you a little bit of introduce. Uh, we'll give you a little bit of context to the report and uh, introduce Jesse, our uh, my co-author uh, Jesse Doyle from the World Bank, who will be presenting the report. And uh, we then have three discussants, and I think uh, you know I've told Jesse not to take too long because I'm sure you can read the report. And uh, I think our three discussants are going to be you know just as or if not more interesting than. Uh, Uh, hearing about the report. Uh, We have uh, two uh, users of the scheme, uh, Susan Jenkins from Ironbark Citrus uh, in Queensland, who's been uh, employing uh, seasonal workers on her farm for uh, several years, Uh, and Grant Owen, who runs Owen Pacific Workforce, an approved employer under the scheme who's been bringing workers into Australia uh, also for the last few years. So they'll be talking about their perspectives. And then a very fortunate... Uh, to have Mark Rodham, who's the branch head for um, the part of Department of Employment that manages the program. In fact, uh, we're very happy to have Mark back. He was here as a discussant for our last survey back in 2012. So it's great to have that continuity uh, and uh, expertise to um, give us the government perspective on uh, these findings and on the scheme. So yeah, we have, a, and then uh, we want to leave time for Q&A, which is why we pushed it out to, to 1.30. Uh, so we do have a packed schedule. I hope you find it uh, interesting. And uh, I'd now like to call on the uh, World Bank Vice President for East Asia and the Pacific, uh, Axel 
and Trotzenberg to, to say a few words. Do you want to come here? Or well, from I think I can be loud enough. It's pleased to be here uh, and uh, also uh, to listen to the uh, uh, launch of, the, of this study. As uh, Stephen said, that the bank has been involved on uh, labor issues in the Pacific since uh, about 10 years. And um, in general, the bank has been uh, quite uh, um, uh, involved on labor issues. We have had an, uh, a world development report uh, dedicated on, we had a regional uh, flagship uh, uh, report dedicated, uh, as well as a sub-regional flagship report dedicated to the uh, Pacific. Uh, where we also touched on the seasonal uh, workers program and showed uh, the imp economic importance uh, that such a program could have for, uh, uh, for the Pacific. Uh, we even provided some statistics how that relates uh, to uh, ultimately uh, workers' remittances. And um, so I, I think uh, it will be important uh, that this uh, uh, debate is carried uh, forward. Uh, the interesting thing is we are not looking only at Australia, we're looking at New Zealand, we're looking at the United States, how different policies are influencing uh, 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 behaviors as well as how well this is being exploited, um, uh, particularly in the, uh, uh, in the case of the... Uh, uh, Marshalls or Palau or and, 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 and Micronesia, as you see, a, a lot of uh, ease to enter the U.S. Uh, labor market. Um, we think that um, it is also an important approach by using data, and uh, I think what is good is now that we have a second survey looking at uh, maybe some of the uh, issues related to uh, maybe the perceived lack of response and lack of full exploitation of the potential uh, uh, here in Australia. We hope in general to take uh, this whole debate on the labor mobility forward uh, in the uh, Pacific possible. Uh, so this is not uh, an official finding of the Pacific possible because we haven't uh, launched yet the, uh, the uh, uh, concept note officially, but I think that this type of issues need um, uh, a comprehensive debate and we very much welcome uh, the research that has been undertaken. So uh, looking forward to uh, the presentation. Uh, thanks very much, Axel. Uh, I'll now uh, start the presentation and just set the context before I hand over to Jesse. So I don't know uh, if Axel and Susan, do you want to sit uh, on the side? Because there's a PowerPoint. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then we'll come up for your presentation and discussion. All right, well, I'm just going to, uh, going to set the context uh, for you, and I'm going to go pretty quickly over this initial material. I'm sure uh, you're all familiar uh, with the so-called triple win, that uh, labor mobility, if done well, is good for the sending country, it's good for the receiving country, and it's good for the migrants themselves. Uh, these are all the benefits. It's, uh, these are the benefits for the receiving countries, right? I think we, probably most people in this room, you probably accept that labor mobility is a good idea, so I'm not going to try and... Press that case is particularly important for the Pacific, where you've got this massive youth bulge and uh, you know quite high levels of unemployment, underemployment, and limited uh, economic opportunities. 
Uh, let's not forget, you know, that people also benefit from migration. The benefits extend to the migrants themselves, not just the remittances, but it's the, the wages and the skills. So let's come to what we're talking about. Just to refresh your memory, uh, we began with the Pacific Seasonal Worker Pilot Scheme that started in uh, 2009 and uh, started a very small uh, scale and uh, built up somewhat. But, uh, you know, these are the caps and uh, this is the take-up. So low caps and even lower take-up. And, uh, you know, compared to the New Zealand scheme, right, which went uh, from 5,000 to 8,000, pretty much hitting the caps uh, from an early stage, and we know that's now gone up to, uh, that cap's gone up to 9,000. So as a result of that low take-up in the pilot scheme, uh, we initiated a survey, uh, which uh, I did with a former student, Danielle Hay. And I will just uh, diverge for a second to say it's very satisfying to see uh, former students, like initially Danielle and now Jesse, uh, do this kind of research, because they were both uh, students at the Crawford School. It's great to see our students stepping up to do this uh, policy-relevant research. Anyway, we did a survey of employers, uh, almost 200 horticultural uh, growers, and uh, to, f to ask them, you know, why, whether they heard of the scheme, you know, whether they thought there was a need for it. That survey was in 2011, we published it in 2012, that's when we had our first conference on uh, labour mobility, and there are basically three reasons that came up, right? Lack of aggregate labour shortage, lack of information about the scheme, about half of farmers hadn't heard of it, and then perceived uh, high levels of risk and cost. Alright, well, despite it being a small scheme, uh, the uh, pilot scheme was made into a regular permanent scheme into the Seasonal Worker Program in 2012. And uh, it was, uh, the caps were increased and they were sort of escalated upwards to increase over time. And what we've seen under the Seasonal Worker Program scheme is uh, certainly increased growth, about 500 a year, but still in the scheme of things low take up. And uh, so compared to the relatively small caps, take up was about three quarters in 2012 13, 81% in 2013 14. It's a bit complicated this year, as you might have seen from uh, my recent blog, and it may come up today. Uh, actually, the scheme is now hitting the cap uh, for horticulture, and that's because uh, some uh, about 500 or so places have been reserved for what are called the expansion sectors, cotton, aquaculture, cane and tourism. Uh, take up in those schemes is very small and we're not covering them in our survey. But that reservation is now impacting on the uh, seasonal worker program. But next year, you know, the scheme, the scheme cap will go to 4,200 and on present uh, projections won't uh, reach that cap. So, same question uh, came up, you know, well, well, okay, yes, good to have the growth, but again, why aren't we seeing uh, more uh, take-up? And, uh, you know, this time the World Bank was interested because they'd been investing heavily on the supply side, helping countries to send labour, so they were interested, well, why don't we, why can't we find more opportunities uh, for these countries? So, hence, uh, we decided to do a uh, second survey, and uh, I'll now hand over to Jesse, and he will take you through the survey and the, and the results. Great, thanks, Stephen. So, this really was a follow-on survey, as Stephen had suggested, and we were asking the same question, so why aren't employees uh, taking on Pacific Season workers to the extent that they could? Um, and also looking at whether anything had changed since the 2011 survey. Um, we surveyed 217 employees across the horticultural sector and 43 industry bodies, so it was quite a large sample. I still remember the first uh, employer I surveyed as a, part of, as a part of this study when I called up and said uh, I was from the World Bank. 
He said, uh, I've already got an account with the Commonwealth Bank. I'm not interested in a home loan, and then he hung up on me. Um, and that really set the tone for the rest of the survey. I basically spent half the time trying to convince growers that I wasn't trying to offer them a home loan. And, but you know, once I got past that barrier, they were quite candid in their responses. And this made for some um, quite interesting data. So from that data, we determined six key constraints uh, that, uh, that horticultural employers were facing. Um, sorry. And one that stood out uh, immediately was that there was still a lack of awareness about the scheme. So one uh, out of every three growers hadn't actually heard of the Seasonal Worker Program. And amongst those who had heard of the Seasonal Worker Program, there were also a lot of uh, misconceptions about both the costs and requirements for approved employers. So many growers thought that uh, six months was the minimum amount of time that they could take on Pacific Seasonal Workers. Others thought that it was compulsory to recruit through labour hire companies. Um, and this, you know, it's, it's possible that this was due to the lack of information. So. 69% um, of growers said that they, they, they felt the, the scheme hadn't been communicated to them clearly um, by government. So of those growers who had heard of the scheme, um, the key constraint um, was basically the lack of an aggregate labour shortage. So 67% said the reason they were using the seasonal worker program was because there was simply no need. Um, and that continues to, to plague the scheme uh, from the previous survey. So there are two, two aspects to this. Um, the first is the, pre the prevalence of illegal workers and practices in the industry. So four out of five growers that we surveyed uh, recognised that there were undocumented workers in the industry to at least some extent. Um, the second uh, is the, the, the visa extension for backpackers. So if backpackers uh, work in a rural area for 88 days, they're able to get a, a second year visa extension if they're working in certain sectors, and horticulture is one of those. And you can see from that table down the bottom that there's about 45,000 backpackers that take on that second year visa extension, which is quite a number. Um, another key constraint was the costliness. So seasonal workers aren't operating on a level playing field. Um, basically, approved employers have to pay additional costs to take on Pacific seasonal workers. They have to pay for $500 of their uh, international airfare. They need to pay for a portion of their domestic transfer costs. And then there's also organising accommodation and visa fees, which they can later uh, recoup through wage deductions. But there's this upfront cost as well. Unsurprisingly, uh, the majority of employees said the key changes that would make the seasonal worker program more attractive uh, revolved around cost. So 75% said they would like to see the uh, international uh, travel cost uh, removed. 48% said they don't want to pay for the domestic uh, transfer costs. And 35% uh, said that organising accommodation was something that they would like to see changed. Another issue that was identified in the uh, survey of the pilot scheme was risk, and that continued on with this survey. So three of the largest risks for growers that we found through this survey uh, were having to provide a minimum of uh, 14 weeks work. Um, so that's the absolute minimum period that they can take Pacific seasonal workers on for. And for a lot of crops, uh, the harvesting season is less than 14 weeks, so it's difficult for them to take on those workers. Um, another one was not having the same degree of control in worker selection um, and having to pay upfront costs for untested workers. So many growers said that, look, we'd be happy to pay these upfront costs, 
but we don't know the quality of the workers that are coming over. We haven't met them, so it's difficult for us to, to make that call in the early stages. Reputation uh, was another area that we looked at. An interesting finding was that amongst uh, non-participating growers, the reputation of the scheme was quite poor. Um, so the majority felt that it was either average, below average, or poor. Um, but amongst those that were involved in the scheme, so approved employers and participating growers, they held, they held the scheme in much higher regard. So 66% uh, said that it was either above average or excellent. So those that are using Pacific Seasonal Workers were overwhelmingly uh, happy with, with the scheme. Another interesting finding was that approved employers found that Pacific Seasonal Workers were on average uh, more dependable, more productive and more enthusiastic than uh, either locals or backpackers. And you can see from that graph there the difference was actually quite astounding. Um, and that was also a finding that was reflected in a, a survey of the RSE in New Zealand. And then just one final constraint, which was more of an issue for those involved with the scheme, because those that weren't using it obviously aren't uh, aware of the administrative requirements. But they found that there was an administrative cost involved with the scheme, which made it unattractive to a certain extent. Um, the average amount of time uh, taken uh, to process the paperwork required to become an approved employee was 4.6 months, which in the horticulture industry could be the difference between um, getting your fruit off the trees or having it rot on the trees. And again, that's just from the, the sample of employers that we looked at. Um, it might be a different figure in reality. Um, other administrative costs include having to report to government, um, superannuation, so they need to deal with the paperwork around superannuation, um, which isn't a factor in the IRC in New Zealand. And then there's the labour market testing requirement, um, which is in place to ensure that uh, Pacific seasonal workers aren't taking uh, jobs away from Australians. So despite uh, these constraints, there are still uh, you know, roughly 2,000 workers that are coming over per financial year, and a lot of improved employers that are involved with the scheme. So there are obviously a lot of things that are right with the scheme and that are working for the industry. And we also wanted to understand, well, who's actually using the scheme? Um, so by and large, it was much larger uh, horticultural employers. So the average property size for those involved with the scheme was 385 hectares compared to 68 for non-participating growers. And on average, they took on about an extra 120 workers per financial year. So they're much larger properties. And they're also uh, involved in certain crops. So citrus and grapes are two examples of, of crops that have a, a season which lasts 14 weeks. So they work for the scheme. Um, a lot of others didn't. For example, some of the melon categories or uh, mangoes. So based on this uh, key set of constraints, um, we basically decided to come up with a set of reforms or possible options that could help uh, improve take-up in the scheme. Um, no, single of, uh, no single reform is going to be the silver bullet for the scheme, but these are a series of, uh, of potential reforms which could improve take-up. Um, so in terms of uh, addressing um, illegal workers and backpackers, um, one thing we suggested is to increase funding for compliance activities. So with the RSE in New Zealand, basically what they did before they introduced it was they boosted a whole lot of funding into the um, Department of Immigration there and made sure that they got illegal workers out of the industry. So that's one thing they could do. 
Another would be to um, make an amendment to the, to the working holiday visa and specifically the second year visa extension. Um, there are a number of, of different things they could do. One would be to remove it altogether. Another one which would probably be more palpable to industry would be to reduce it to three months, as, in, as is the case in New Zealand. Or they could expand it to all sectors. Um, so at the moment, as I said, it's just focusing on agriculture, mining and construction. And what we're saying is that if you expand it to all sectors, then it wouldn't have the same uh, distortionary effect on the labour market. Um, the second area is additional costs. Um, obviously, with a lot of the workers that are coming over, they're not in a position to pay the upfront costs in their first season. But what we've said is for returning workers that have been in the, season, uh, in the scheme for at least one season, they've had a chance to save you know, four or $5,000. Maybe the next season they could... Uh, take care of some of the, the, the additional costs. So remove the $500 contribution um, for employers um, and also remove the employer contributions for domestic travel. In terms of uh, risk, we felt that the 14-week uh, minimum work requirement could be reduced, um, as is the case in New Zealand. But if you're going to introduce that reform, it's important to give Pacific seasonal workers the flexibility to shift between approved employers. So right now, it's quite difficult for them to move from one approved employer to the other. Um, and then just briefly going through the, the last three constraints. Um, in terms of lack of awareness, um, we felt that the, the scheme could be advertised more effectively through a targeted group of uh, horticultural industry bodies. Um, on the reputation, I think there's a clear case to be made for the scheme. Uh, this is, there's a very strong business case. Um, the Australian Bureau of Agricultural uh, Resource Economics and Sciences came out with a paper in 2013 which showed that Pacific seasonal workers are 22% more efficient than backpackers. So using those kind of findings to really push the scheme on industry and, and basically inform them of what the benefits are of taking on uh, Pacific seasonal workers. Um, just on the administrative requirements, um, quickening the processing time, for the approved employer application, um, streamlining the reporting requirements to government, um, allowing approved employers to pay the superannuation contribution uh, directly into their wages, and then just finally uh, removing the labour market testing requirement um, for postcodes that qualify for the uh, second year visa extension um, with the working holiday makers. So basically, we're looking at uh, levelling the playing field. That's the, that's the key message that's coming out of this report, is that uh, the Pacific season workers aren't currently operating uh, on a level playing field, and, and these reforms would really help them, uh, give them a better chance in Australia. So, again, there are a list of, of possible options that we feel would improve uh, employer take-up in the scheme. And in doing so, um, remove, remove the seasonal worker program from the periphery and really bring it to the centre of the horticulture industry and uh, to the development of the Pacific Islands. So, but we welcome uh, discussion following on from these findings. Thank you. Uh, well, thanks very much, Jesse, for that very clear presentation. As he uh, suggested, it's not an easy task to uh, survey horticulturalists. There's no natural sampling frame. <laughs> and uh, 
we, we feel the second time round, uh, we, we did a better job than the first time. We went back to those first group, as many as we could, but we surveyed additional horticulturalists. We also spoke to more industry associations, and of course there are more participating growers to, to get lessons uh, from. So, um, terrific job. Uh, we've now got our three uh, discussants, as I mentioned. There's no um, you know, significance to the order, uh, but I have our Susan uh, to kick us off, and then we'll go to Mark and, and Grant. Uh, so I've already introduced uh, Susan, but uh, just to remind you, she's uh, the owner of Ironbark Citrus uh, uh, from uh, Central Burnett District of Queensland, and uh, we're very grateful to you for coming down and uh, spending this time with us. Uh, so please welcome uh, Susan Jenkins. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come and speak today. Um, I'll have to read my notes, I'm not that good at doing it all off by memory. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about my participation with the Seasonal Worker Program and the pilot over about the last five years. Uh, firstly, I'll just give you a little bit of background about our business and who we are and about our labour needs, about how and why we became involved in the Seasonal Worker Scheme, and then I'd like to outline a little bit about what I see the benefits for the program from my perspective of course there's a lot of other benefits but I'm sort of trying to give my perspective and um, then I'd like to look at some of the conclusions and recommendations that Jesse's just mentioned and just give a little bit of my slant on some of those um, recommendations. So we're a family owned and operated business we're based in Mundubra in the central Burnett district of Queensland. Um, we established a business my husband and I in uh, 1990, planted the seeds right from scratch. We uh, currently pack, produce, pack, market and export about 5,000 tonnes of mandarins per year. And we have two farms with another one under development um, and about 60,000 producing mandarin trees and about 15,000 more coming on in the next few years. Um, we have our own packing shed and uh, cool room complex. Um, we've been successfully, we're predominantly an exporter and we've been successfully exporting into Asia for about 20 plus years. Um, yeah, predominantly into Asia. We've been employing the seasonal workers since the second year of the pilot and um, have some workers now who've come, been completed five seasons with us. I think it's five. Um, I'm a great supporter of this program and firmly believe that despite its slow start, it provides an excellent solution to the problem of access to labour that the horticultural industry faces, especially in more remote areas. Our Mandarin harvest season runs from mid-April until mid-August, so we fit right in the seasonal worker time frame, um, with the, our labour needs peaking during the first eight weeks of our harvest. Mandarin growing, like most horticulture, is a very labour-intensive industry with all the pruning, thinning, harvesting and packing activities basically done by hand. Um, at the peak of our season, we require about 100 extra employees uh, to complete the harvest. In fact, the management labour is a huge part of our business. It takes up about 50 up to 50% of our budget. Um, Mundubra is a very small rural community with a population of about 2,000 people. That's in the district. The size of the community and the fact that there's a number of large horticultural operations in our area means there's a shortage of available labour for our business and that our peak seasonal um, labour demands must be met from outside the district. In fact, they have traditionally been met from outside the country anyway. 
um, prior to the start of the seasonal worker program in Australia and the pilot, um, we were totally relying on working holiday visa um, holders, the backpackers, for the majority of our labour requirements. Um, now about 45% of our labour force consists of seasonal workers from Timor-Leste in the Pacific, 45% are backpackers and about 10% are Australians, with the Australians basically forming our core permanent workforce. Um, seasonal workers recruited on this program are now an integral part of our workforce. We source over 70 workers annually in a series, we basically only source workers for our own business with one other, a couple of other growers we've done just to try and give them a taste and get them interested. Um, our, we have four recruitments in April, September, December and March and we try to overlap groups at peaks, peak demand times so we actually all have two groups in at once when, when our demand for labour peaks. Um, so far we've employed workers from Tonga, Papua New Guinea, Timor-Leste and we helped out another approved employer with some Samoan workers as well when, last year. Um, our seasonal workers are, as Jesse mentioned, more productive and efficient than other workers. The survey Jesse mentioned was actually t done on our workers and so those results show clearly that the um, seasonal workers are way more productive than the backpacker workers. We employ people on piece rates so they're paid per bin or per tree pruned or whatever. And um, in fact, the seasonal workers are earning an average of $4.50 an hour more than backpackers when, you, when they're paid per bin or whatever. Yeah, so, and that the returning seasonal workers actually earn $2.80 an hour more than first-time seasonal workers. So once they're trained up, it's just showing the benefit of that returning factor, I suppose. These figures are also backed up by data I've extracted from our own payroll records. Because of productivity gains, which seem to strongly correlate with our involvement in the seasonal worker program over the past five years, our cost per bin of fruit, pick had, fruit picked has actually decreased, despite the fact that obviously average wages and piece rates are based around hourly rate, wage rates anyway. So despite the fact that wages have been going up, our costs have actually been reduced over this time. Now, it's a correlation. It's, I can't say it's causative. Our total number of workers employed has actually declined despite our increased production, reflecting again the st stability of that seasonal worker core part of our workforce now. We found, we found um, in a three-month period during our 2013 season that our seasonal workers were earned an average monthly wage of about $4,400, um, compared with 836 for backpackers and um, Australian workforce. Now, obviously, that's reflecting the fact that the Australians and the backpackers don't stay. So they don't earn a lot of money. It's not that we are mercilessly exploiting them. <laughs> so, uh, apart from such productivity gain, there are additional benefits of... Um, reduced recruitment, training, administrative costs for these seasonal workers because they're vastly reduced turnover. Our seasonal workers stay for five to six months and turn up every day for work. We also have a return rate of about more than 75% for our seasonal workers compared with less than 5% for backpackers, obviously, because some of our backpackers do qualify for the second visa. Um, so we now have a core harvest workforce of experienced, productive workers <clears throat> and are not really totally reliant on those whims of the backpackers who are, after all, here in Australia for a holiday. That was never intended that they should be pr 
primarily workers. Um, and these, of course, are only the benefits to our business. They're all the benefits to workers, their families, their communities, our community, and government-to-government -government benefits of engagement with Pacific. Um, now, I just want to focus a little bit on the report now. I um, summarised Jesse's and, and Stephen's things down to three points. Um, basically, the oversupply of labour, the perceived costs and risks, and the lack of awareness or negative impression of the program. The overs with the oversupply of labour question, there's sort of two sides to this point, because we, we have both an undersupply and an oversupply of labour in our district. We have an undersupply of reliable, fit, experienced Australian labour and an oversupply of unreliable and inexperienced backpacker labour. During the height of the season, we have hundreds of backpackers knocking on our door and ringing us up. It's a huge waste of our time asking jobs. Um, so that's just the way it happens. They, like the few Australians who do apply under our requirements to labour market test before we do um, seasonal workers. We, every time we employ seasonal workers, we have to labour market test. It's horrible. And we get very few Australians applying, and they're often people who are very unused to manual labour, and they're really unfit mentally and physically for the tasks that we've got. Our, our jobs aren't easy. You know, it's hard physical labour, and you have to dig in, and it's, it's really quite difficult. Um, so hence they have very low retention rates, they don't stick with the job because it's too hard. Um, the expansion of the working holiday visa also had the unintended effect of increasing the number of backpackers who work solely for my signature on their second uh, visa application form. And that really annoys us. <laughs> um, they have no concern for productivity and they just are hammering you to sign and please put a few extra days. Um, I've already given you the relative productivity figures of the Australians and the backpackers as opposed to seasonal workers and of course the numbers tell the story. On top of this situation there's the illegal labour industry, not so prominent in our area, which offers cut price labour. Our remoteness from major cities seems to mitigate against their presence in our area and maybe this partly explains why our little Mandaba area, which is a very small part of Australia, has such a huge use of the seasonal worker program relatively. The costs and risks of using seasonal worker program are very real. Farming in Australia is basically a really tough business. Our costs of production are very high, which makes it particularly difficult for businesses like ours who are competing in a world market. Our major competitors in the world market have vastly lower cost of production. Combine this with the fact that we're generally not price setters but price takers, although we try very hard not to be, and the influence of the value of the Australian dollar, it can get very tricky to balance the books. Then, in horticulture, we have the wages component of our costs, as I said, as high as 50%. Using the worker from the seasonal worker program is more expensive in both direct and indirect ways. There's the one-off cost of the approvals process. There's the compliance costs of ongoing reporting, and particularly, as Mark would have heard from me before, labour market testing, which I find a huge bureaucratic waste of time. And, of course, the... Um, preparation of your recruitment and pastoral care plans. Um, the employer contributions of 500 towards the airfare costs of each season worker and the costs of getting the workers from their point of entry to the workplace, which is nowhere near covered by the $100 contribution from the workers. Um, especially for people like us who are quite some distance from the point of entry. And if we want to get a cheap airfare for our workers via Sydney, 
then we are liable to get them from Sydney to Mandabra. So what we have to do, we're forced by the rules to do, is actually get a more expensive airfare direct to Brisbane, so the cost of getting them from Brisbane Airport is a lot. It's ridiculous. It's just a silly rule. Um, the costs associated with paying the up, upfront costs are pretty much $2,000 a worker. Um, and the associated, associated risks of no repayment should the worker run away or be unable to travel for some reason, which has happened to us, or these expense, after all these expenses have occurred. Um, the cost of organising and providing accommodation and transport to and from work for the workers. The cost of providing your pastoral care to your workers and dealing with ine inevitable health and welfare problems when you're dealing with people. Um, for example, for us, if a seasonal worker needs to see stabs of thorn in their eye and they've got to go to see a specialist, it's a 400-kilometre round, round trip plus a driver and the time to get them there and back again. And if they've got to see them three times, well, that's what we have to do. Um, most of the costs listed above never really been quantified, an area I think warrants further research. I suspect some of these costs are greater than we all imagine and most approved employers just put them in that labour of love category. A lot of farmers are not willing or just not able to take on any extra cost burden. Um, combine this with the risks of workers running away or not actually being suitable for the work available, which does happen. Um, then we have the commitment to provide the work over a relatively extended period of time, balanced against the inevitable natural disasters that are part and parcel of a farming lifestyle. It all starts to look just a little bit less attractive. Um, promotion of the program has been a little bit schizophrenic. There was initially a great reluctance to actively promote the program because of the fear of appearing to promote the use of foreign workers over Australians. Should an Australian Department of Employment charged with dealing with policy and issues surrounding the employment of Australians be actively promoting the employment of foreign workers? Dunno. Promotion was initially very softly, softly to the point that nobody really knew it existed. I only found out about the program because a member of the local Tongan community came to me and told me about it and said, why don't you get some workers for Tonga? And I said, oh, I don't think we're allowed to. It's only for Victoria. Because it was initially only for Victoria. Um, I really believe the fear of promoting foreign workers is still constraining the effective promotion of the scheme. Yes, there is backlash in local communities. We've had a couple of local contractors in our community who, because of a chronic shortage of skilled workers, had been basically pricing themselves out of the market successfully. Well, not, not out of the market at that stage, but pricing themselves very highly because of scarcity. Um, they were most disgruntled when there was suddenly no longer a shortage of labour and um, actually tried to stir up trouble in the community. Um, these attitudes do exist and they do need to be addressed. You can't avoid them. Successful promotion of the program is essential. There are thousands of people from the Pacific and Timor-Leste ready, able and willing to come and work on Australian farms. All the participating countries are actively promoting their workers to the existing approved employers. There's no real point to this until we get the Australian demand situation sorted out. As to the reputation of the program, as you've heard, I unreservedly recommend the seasonal worker program. I don't ever want to go back to the situation where we're totally reliant on backpackers again. Um, I don't know of anyone in our area who has tried the scheme and hasn't gone back for more. Um, that's why the numbers are increasing to the point that just recently, we've, this season, we're now being told there's a limit on the amount of workers we can bring out for our season, which is starting very shortly in um, April. Um, 
So I've just got, I'm going to finish up with a few suggestions. Um, the over, on the oversupply of labour issue, it was unfortunate that the expansion of the working holiday class visa coincided with the introduction of the seasonal worker program. But any radical change to the current system will be vigorously opposed by growers in our area, I know that for sure. Unless there's a commensurate expansion of the seasonal worker program and probably it comes a little bit more cost, a bit less cost painful, it will leave farmers with less labour options than what they've gone today, got today. Illegal labour <coughs> excuse me, remains a significant problem in our industry at large. Everyone likes to pay less. And because of difficult economies, economics of our industry, some people see it as their only viable option. And while the grower organisations are actively working to discourage the use of such labour, government resources need to be made available to try to stamp out the industry. Now, the costs and risks of using the seasonal worker program, it would be more popular if it was cheaper. Well, I think that's obvious from Jesse's figures there. Reducing costs would reduce financial risk to the growers. As a grower, I support the following changes. Removal of the employer contribution towards all travel costs. While I know this is not the case for all seasonal workers, our workers earn very good money in the vicinity of around $20,000 gross over five or six months and get to claim all of their superannuation back on top of that. Um, they've got the capacity to pay for their own travel costs. It's like telling me I have to give people a compulsory bonus, really. I'm nearly there. Yep, nearly there. Um, Maybe the sending countries could organise for returning workers to, to deposit their superannuation payout into a fund to set money aside for succeeding years because that's money that's extra anyway and it seems to be easy way to save it. Financial risk to employers of workers absconding should not be borne by the employers. Absconding work is a result of affording recruiting and should be borne by those doing the recruiting. Employers should be free to move workers as long as the workers agree to this. Farming is an inexact science. We cannot predict to the day our labour needs and should have this flexibility to incorporate into our planning. This way can we, we can also ensure maximum um, work is offered to our workers. There's a whole raft of administrative reforms I'll give straight to Mark. Um, I won't talk about that. I think he's heard most of them. <coughs> Just the last final point. The seasonal worker program was initially not an employer-focused program. In fact, it was specifically stated it was an aid program and that was a priority, despite the fact that employers are critical to the success of the program. Sometimes in the early days, I felt like an essential evil, someone to be audited, checked up on or dealt with, rather than a partner. If you want to promote to Australian employees, you need to truly engage with them. You need to understand their pressures and priorities. We run our businesses very differently to the way government runs its departments, and rightly so, we have very different priorities. It's very interesting that some of the most engaging and effective promotion of the program that I've seen was carried out by Ismenio De Silva, who was the former Labor attaché to the uh, MC of Timor-Leste, who travelled the length and breadth of Australia talking with farmers about their issues. And understanding personal touch goes a long way. Get good more Good hard more good hard evidence on productivity gains. One small survey is not enough on one farm. Um, I'm not really comfortable that it's only that people are sprouting these figures on such a small base. Um, forget the seasonal worker conference. These conferences are basically preaching to the converted. Use those funds to get out into the regions and talks to employers. 
And that's it for me for today. And I'll answer any questions. Sorry. Thanks very much, uh, Susan. That's very insightful. I do know Susan was an ANU graduate, and I told she gets tired of growing Mandarin, she can get a job as an academic. <laughs> that was great analysis. Uh, but now uh, we'll hand over to, to Mark to mention Mark Robbins, the branch head uh, for the, uh, within Department of Employment Managing this program, and uh, we really value his long experience and expertise uh, on the SWP, and we look forward to Mark's contribution. So please welcome Mark Robbins. Thanks very much, uh, Stephen, and thanks to ANU, uh, the Crawford School, and to, to World Bank for undertaking the, the survey. My role, I think, today is to give the boring government presentation between the two employer presentations, which will be uh, much more exciting at the, at the coalface. But um, we think we're, we're really uh, pleased with, with where the seasonal worker program has got to in what is now halfway through its third, years, third year. And we're a long way from where we were during the Pacific Seasonal Worker Pilot Scheme and the, the commencement of the Seasonal Worker Program. The government's committed to the Seasonal Worker Program and it, it shows, as the study on Sue's farm uh, demonstrates, that's a really important uh, way of satisfying the labour needs of particularly the horticulture industry when they can't find enough local workers. We're really excited that we're going to have our 10th country join the Seasonal Worker Program soon in Fiji. So the uh, Minister Bishop, Minister for Foreign Affairs, has extended a memorandum of understanding with Fiji, and that's currently working through the Fiji system. Uh, and I think um, it makes it truly, uh, truly uh, covers all of the Pacific, I guess, now uh, that don't have access to the New Zealand or US labour market. So um, I think it was Stephen put up the caps before uh, per year for the program. Uh, within the cap, as, as Stephen indicated, we have with the, within the overall cap, we have caps for the trial industries and caps for the horticulture industry. So if you just take the caps for the horticulture industry, in the first year we saw 91% of the 1,600 places available taken up by the horticulture sector. In the second year, 99% of those of the 2,600, uh, sorry, the 2,000 places were available. And this year we're having very strong demand, as at 31st of January, 57% of the 2,600 places available have been used. And that's, uh, we're still getting into the busy peak of the season. Um, as, uh, as Sue indicated, I think, Stephen, as well, we have, uh, because these caps were set by the former government each year for the trials and for the, uh, and for the uh, horticulture sector, we are, we are sort of bound by those for the moment, but the government is actively aware of the issue and uh, considering uh, the issue suggested by Stephen uh, in his recent blog around, um, around switching places between the trial sectors and uh, the horticulture program to make more places available for horticulture. Uh, so we've seen more employers in more geographical locations and we've seen the number of returning workers increase year after year and that really is the foundation of what can be an ongoing uh, successful seasonal worker program. I really really welcome the, the World Bank's report. I think for us though, as um, Sue very quite rightly said then, I think the most useful research for us now is research into the productivity benefits of the seasonal, to employers of the seasonal worker program, that's the most effective promotion tool we can have. I think our experience shows that hearing from government or hearing from people that haven't participated in the program uh, only has so much effect in hearing and seeing firm data and the experience of employers is really important. Um, so I mentioned how well the horticulture part of the program is going now. It's a different story for our trial industries where the take-up has been quite low in aquaculture, sugarcane, 
cotton particularly. Um, now these industries say that they've had, are telling us that they don't, don't really have a need for the program with the downturn, particularly in the mining industry in some regional, area, regional areas, uh, has meant that they've got local workers returning um, that they had lost in the past. Um, the accommodation sector is increasing and it's only available in certain regions and I think that is a promising way for the future. I suppose I would emphasise that that's why you have a trial to test if something works or not. If we hadn't have uh, tried in particular those three industries that haven't worked out, we would never know. Um, so uh, just turning to some of the specific recommendations of, of the World Bank report, of Jesse and Stephen's report. Just on the issue of red tape, we do recognise that as a, that is a particular issue for business. And we have made a number of changes that are within our bailiwick within the Department of Employment to make things easier for those participating. So from the 1st of July this year, we'll have a new expression of interest form, which will be a smart e-application form, which is less paperwork for employers looking to become an approved employer and then recruit workers. We're going to replace the requirement to submit a recruitment plan and a letter of offer of employment with just the requirement to submit the letter of offer prior to recruiting seasonal workers. We're going to revise reporting requirements We'll still need to have some reporting, reporting requirements because we have obligations under our memoranda of understanding with countries uh, and need to maintain protections for workers, but we are seeing we will be revising that and minimising that as much as we can. We're also going to develop an on-arrival DVD for employers that they can show seasonal workers to reduce the amount of time they have to spend briefing seasonal workers when they arrive to Australia, right in Australia. So I think that's important work we can undertake to help out. We want to do further things to reduce red tape around tax and superannuation arrangements, but they are more complicated and need, need to be done in the long need to be made in the longer term. In terms of labour market testing, as Sue said, her favourite one uh, to raise with us, um, it is. Uh, we understand certainly it is a frustration for employers, but in, particularly in an environment of rising unemployment and particularly a youth unemployment situation in Australia, it is a great concern uh, to the government, to our department, and many people. Um, the requirement to test the local labour market, we believe, is, in, is important to ensure it's responding to labour market conditions. But perhaps there are different or more effective ways to do that, and we're certainly open to that. In terms of safeguarding the rights of seasonal workers, um, we think there is a strong need to maintain protections for what can be a vulnerable workforce. Not every recruitment goes as well as they do on Sue's farm, unfortunately, and they're the ones uh, we spend a lot of time on, and they're the ones for which the safeguards are there. There's no other program quite like this in Australia. It is the first time Australia has uh, dipped its toe in the water of uh, low-skilled labour mobility. Um, and they are a different workforce to backpackers, I think, um, coming from the poorest countries in the region, where I think backpackers often come from uh, more wealthy countries, perhaps from, uh, from more middle-class or, or backgrounds. So pastoral care, adequate briefings and community support is really important. In terms of um, the issue of crackdown on illegal labour, I think there has been a lot of progress made, in that, made on that in the last year, particularly in relation to the Fair Work Ombudsman and their harvest trail project to make sure that workers are getting their proper entitlements. And perhaps we're not sure, but perhaps that's the reason we have had the increasing demand for the program this year, as, uh, as they have uh, cracked down on um, businesses of, of a dubious nature. Um, we've also just... Introduce some new rules around contractors, which are a particular type of employer that have a risk, have a very high risk profile, um, so that they you can only be um, a contractor business as part of the seasonal worker program if you've got a proven unble unblemished workplace relations record over a significant period of time. 
And that's not something we've imposed, that's actually something that's been requested by a lot of our employers and from the countries themselves because they don't want the program dragged into what they see as perhaps a more unseemly side of the industry that doesn't need to be cleaned up and is in the process of being cleaned up. So that hopefully gives you a flavour of, uh, of what we're doing. I'm sure you've got questions later on, which I'm very happy to answer. Uh, but that's it from me for now. Thanks. Mark, for the uh, perspective and the, the updates you've given us. And um, I think the issue about getting productivity data is a very interesting one. It's one we tried to work on with Richard here, and uh, it's just a matter of getting a hold of the data. It's not easy. Something we'd like to pursue. I uh, will now turn to our third and final speaker, uh, Grant Owen, who uh, runs the Owen Pacific Workforce. I know he also has a very interesting personal story in how he got involved in the uh, SWP. And uh, Grant, thanks very much for coming down from Coffs Harbour. We look forward to what you have to say. Please welcome Grano. Thank you, Stephen, and uh, thank you, everyone. Um, I've spent most of my career as an HR manager. Uh, was made redundant through a uh, merger just before the global financial crisis and ended up working for a horticulture company in Coffs Harbour. Uh, after three years, they made me redundant, uh, and they... Had, uh, we had introduced the seasonal worker program there and so that was how I got uh, introduced to the program and when I was made redundant I said to the general manager this program is delivering good results but the management of it leaves a lot to be desired if I could uh, get qualified as an approved employer would you give me a shot at supplying some labour to you and he said yes and uh, so for three years now, I've been providing labour to that and uh, the company and others. I currently have 160 workers on the ground in Australia, and as I implied, I don't own any farm property. I just supply labour to my clients. When people ask my workers why they're in Australia, I say to them, don't say I'm here to pick fruit. You say I'm part of a professional harvest crew because there's a world of difference between the two. Australians not familiar with the horticulture sector uh, don't uh, usually understand, and I can say that from experience because I had no clue uh, about the award, about the conditions of employment and how a horticulture enterprise operates before I became employed in the sector. Employment in this sector is often casual in the award sense, but it's by no means casual in the attitude sense. Typically, my clients will get orders from their clients, such as Woolworths, Aldi, Coles, several weeks in advance. An order for 2,000 trays of raspberries, for example, 14 days from now, will require the confluence of a number of different factors. Is there going to be enough green fruit that's exactly 14 days from maturity? Will the weather over the next 14 days bring that fruit to maturity on exactly the right day? A day before or a day later might as well be a month. Is the watering and nutrition program correctly set to ensure the fruit will be ready on that day? Do we have enough clamshell punnets and cartons and trolleys? Will our cool rooms have enough space? Have we set up the logistics to get the fruit to the uh, client at the right time? And finally, the issue we have an interest in, will we have enough skilled pickers 
to get the fruit off the bushes and into the punnets in the allowed time frame and at a cost that will enable us to make our predicted profit within the price we've agreed for this order. The image of grey nomads and uh, foreign backpackers chatting amicably in the sun while lazily picking fruit between extended coffee breaks on the days when they're not sightseeing and surfing is just not the true picture of piecework in Australia. Uh, at least not on any commercially viable farm I've had anything to do with. The professional harvesters in the seasonal worker program uh, turn up on time every day, rain, hail or shine. Re professional harvesters reliably pick the right fruit. Their quality is consistent and dependable. Professional harvesters pack their fruit in accordance with the specs of the current order. With the required number, even the orientation of the berries in the punnet is important and the weight of the fruit. If a punnet sampled by the supermarket is outside specs, it will be rejected. The whole order will be rejected. The fruit will be sent to the market and sold at a loss and further penalties by the supermarket will follow repeated rejections. Professional harvesters clean off damaged and second quality fruit to maintain the health and the viability of the bush and they set a steady pace and maintain it hour after hour, only taking the minimum number of breaks for rest and refreshment. Last season I stood by a chariot while a new worker, a chariot is a, a big uh, trailer with a roof, uh, and that's where the, the uh, pickers bring their fruit to be weighed and checked and recorded. I stood by a chariot listening while a new worker who'd started that very morning tried to tell the supervisor about his upcoming dental appointment and his driving test and uh, when he'd be available. He, his attitude was, this is when I can get to work and you'll just have to work around that. Multiply that by 800 or 900 people and you get a sense of a harvest manager's job. Then consider this scenario. One morning I was settling in a new crew of 40 Tongans. I was living with them for a few weeks to just get them settled down. We got on the bus at half past four and the rain was just bucketing down. I counted heads to make sure they were all there and then I said, today you guys are going to prove your value to this farm because a lot of the backpackers that you compete against, those kids from Korea and Taiwan and uh, Japan and uh, the States, uh, are going to wake up, they're going to hear the rain on the roof and they're going to go back to sleep. Sure enough, the next morning at uh, half past six when I uh, took, oh, six o'clock, sorry, when I took the crew to the farm, I said to the harvest manager, how did you go yesterday? Oh, Grant, your guys saved the day yesterday. We just barely made our orders because your guys all turned up on time and they worked longer than they were, normally would have stayed because only a third of the backpackers showed up for work. No farmer wants to ring Woolworths and report that they cannot fill an order. Woolworths won't be interested. They will tell the farmer to fill the order or be penalised. That means going to the market and buying the extra fruit at retail cost and uh, then filling the order at cost or maybe even at a loss in order to uh, not disappoint the client because they are ruthless clients. In my experience, once a farmer tries Pacific seasonal workers, they invariably like the results and increase their order the next season. 
The results are both financial and operational. The operational perspective, farmers quickly discover after five or six weeks into the season that instead of spending all day long on the phone to the local hostels trying to round up backpackers, they've got a crew that's turning up every day and delivering a result. They've got time to think about their business, to look for new clients, to plan development and expansion. From a financial perspective, if your best pickers are, picking, uh, are getting better and better, your piece rate is dropping, as Sue uh, talked about. My workers are picking at piece rates my client never dreamed of achieving two years ago. And in my favour, each year their boss builds those achievements into the next budget. So they can't afford to not have seasonal workers any longer because they won't be able to deliver the fruit at the budget that's been set because of the achievements of the previous year. So seasonal workers become an indis indispensable asset to the business. They're not just important for their speed and productivity or for their cheerfulness. Some of my farmers tell me that they love the seasonal workers because they come to work with a song in their lips, they chatter and sing and talk all day long and they lift the mood of the whole crew. But even that's not the most important reason. The thing that makes the difference is their reliability and their consistency. As I said, they turn up rain, hail or shine. They don't take days off unless they really have to because they're paying for their kids' education or to build a house at home. It's important to look after your seasonal workers. There's a lot of extra work, as Sue talked about, in looking after a crew of seasonal workers. There are hundreds of things to be done. I've gone down to the post office with uh, $1,000 in my pocket uh, and uh, sent several different uh, amounts of money off to Western Union on behalf of the employers, employees. Um, we've set up relationships with Westpac in Tonga to make sure there are people who understand what a statutory declaration is so that they can uh, make the application for their superannuation, uh, loan money against wages to pay school fees, assisted them with the purchase of computers and uh, other things they want to take home. I bargain hard to get the best airfares and insurance deals for my workers. But I never lose sight of the fact that if my workers don't deliver a 25% better result than the backpackers they compete against, then in six months I will be out of business and they will be out of a job. So it's got to be commercially viable. If it's not, then it won't be sustainable. Now I've read the report uh, on the research that's been done and uh, I'd like to underline just three changes that have been recommended that I think as an end user of the program are very, very important. I'd like to say that I, no one should imply any criticism of the Department of Employment or the Department of Immigration on this, uh, in these remarks because I think they do a terrific job and I get great service from them. Uh, they always do their very best to help me be successful but sometimes they're limited by the uh, rules of the scheme that they have to administer even though uh, they can see that it's uh, creating an extra burden for me. The first improvement is please remove the requirement to pay superannuation. Superannuation doesn't apply to seasonal workers, it's for retirement. 
Super is a cost to the firm, an administrative and financial cost to the improved employer who now, with the advent of Superstream, I've discovered I have to pay fees for the privilege of paying into the superannuation account. So every time I pay my quarterly super remittance, each worker, uh, for each payment I make, I've got to pay a fee to uh, the uh, BT Super Fund. The only real beneficiary from all of this is the Australian Government. The uh, prohibitive tax penalties that stop you and I from accessing our super early also apply perversely to seasonal workers. So if they do collect their super, they will find almost 60% has gone on tax and fees. Super is often wasted as seasonal workers are unable to collect their super after they return as they find the paperwork very challenging. And super funds are very unforgiving when you uh, leave a signature off or don't tick the correct box. For those who think I'm exaggerating, I share this text message that arrived on the 9th of February, just a few days ago. This was from Helen in Port Vila. She'd accumulated $1,500 in super last season, which, uh, which about probably 600 will remain for her to collect. Hi, Mr Grant. Happy New Year to you and Mrs Owen. Just to let you know that it's been nine months now and I haven't received my super yet. No idea about it. Anyway, it won't be possible because I still can't find my copy of my visa, so it's very hard to claim my super. I just gave up hope. Regards, Helen. Now, since the 9th of February, I have found the copy of that visa uh, and uh, we've provided it to the super fund, so I'm hoping that there might be some activity there. But the provisions of the Superannuation Guarantee Act that exempt employers from having there are provisions, sorry, that exempt employers from making super payments for certain employee groups. So the principle is established and just needs to be extended. Uh, either exclude seasonal workers from the requirement to pay super, as I understand New Zealand has done, or perhaps more realistically, just accrue the super in the payroll like you would annual leave. It'll get paid out as wages and the government will get their tax share. It's much easier for us as the approved employer to administer and the approved and the uh, worker will get a, a more fair share of the superannuation dollar. Second improvement is to remove the requirement for the uh, approved employer to pay the first $500 of the international airfare and the domestic costs. Uh, I could say a lot more about that but I know that time is short so I'll skip ahead. It's been covered I think. Finally, uh, market testing, it is a, a, a terrible burden and I would say it's an insult to the farmers. The real market test is to say to the farmer, do you have enough labour? And if the farmer was able to get good Australian labour that was uh, uh, suitable, then he or she would be using that, but they can't. And that's why the seasonal worker program is so important. I do understand the political necessity for having market testing, and I would suggest the appropriate compromise is that it not be required in second and subsequent recruitments when the uh, need has been established. In fact, it's a bit of a paradox that we go out and try to undermine the program every season by trying to find Australian workers who can fill the, uh, uh, the need 
and cancel the seasonal work program. There's a, a, some kind of contradiction there. Seasonal worker pro the seasonal worker program is a fantastic success. Every farm that tries it increases their uptake of workers after seeing the results. The barriers I've described mean that the scheme has begun to succeed in spite of those barriers and removing them will open the floodgates. Let's be realistic, if Australians wanted those jobs and could do those jobs, then they would be filled with Australians and we wouldn't need the seasonal worker program. But Australians generally don't want that kind of work uh, and those jobs need to be done by someone and the seasonal worker program is the answer. Thank you very much for listening. Mark, I'd ask you to join us. Well, thanks very much, Grant. That was another fascinating set of uh, insights. Uh, now, fortunately, uh, because we've extended, we do have time for uh, Q and A, uh, and I invite you to um, ask your questions to any of the uh, speakers uh, from uh, today's uh, panel. So, yeah, please. Peter, I'm, I'm uh, Donald from the Corbett School. Uh, the uh, <coughs> There's a lot of uh, criticism of the backpackers here. Uh, and that's fair enough. But uh, the reason the backpackers are there is that some years ago, the growers went to the government and said they won't. So uh, <laughs> you're now need to go to the government and say you don't want to. So that, uh, you know, that, that, that's what it's made us. It's quite fundamental. But, uh, uh, the government, can't, the, the, the hospitality industry is falling over itself because they take us to work two years in the, in the hospitality industry. They would prefer to work there than being through. Just push that line. But have them work there rather than here. Uh, all the labour market testing, you know, I work in this area. But, uh, I am absolutely convinced that if we abolish labour market testing across every migration program that we run, it would make absolutely no difference to unemployment in Australia. So that the, uh, the, you know, this, this argument which gets rolled out on that uh, we have to do this because you know, unemployed Australians are too. Sure, units will make that case, but, but they know that labour market testing is a pass themselves and you know the four five seven laser press uh, required it's a complete class it doesn't stop anybody from coming into the country uh, it's uh, and, and in many ways I think it undersells the Australians you know, but the Australians as, as you're saying would not take those jobs they're not the right people for those jobs we are selling Australians who are only short if we think that that's the solution the solution is much harder. We need to be looking at the Australians and looking at the harder solutions, not looking at saying, well, it's all going to go to work if we don't like the Okay, good. Couple of very good comments. Thank you. Uh, James. I'd like to ask the employers, I mean, particularly on the pastoral side, um, are there things that go wrong? Um, yep. I mean, systemically, or things that go wrong again and again, and, and how important uh, are churches? church networks and pastors in managing um, the workforce? We might just take a few questions and comments and then come back. Yeah. Uh, 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 just in terms of future research, in terms of the productivity uh, thing which you mentioned, Susan, 
in terms of the project you participated in, how hard do you think it will be for other employers to also participate in research like that? Uh, as well as, I suppose, to mark from their perspective in, in terms of their capacity to do some of that research for the program. Great, I don't, I just don't know. Uh, employers are allowed to request certain seasonal workers and, and the other way around. Can workers request certain employers just to deal with the risk associated with those quality issues? Okay, I know there are lots more questions. Now we're going to remember Let's, all these. I know. So, <laughs> 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 Problems, research, and maybe I should go back to hiring. Well, I'll have a go. First of all, I'd just like to make the yes, comment about backpackers. Yeah. I don't bag backpackers. They are still an essential part of my employees. We have some fantastic backpackers. They're just not as productive as seasonal workers. We have some great backpackers. We've had them coming back for second years. So I wouldn't like you to think that I'm bagging backpackers. I'm not. They just don't measure up compared to seasonal workers. Um, what was the next question? <laughs> oh, problems. We have every problem that you could possibly imagine over five years. I keep thinking... I think I've had all the problems now. We're dealing with people. We're dealing with large numbers of people. We're dealing with people who are coming from very poor communities into middle-class Australian communities. Um, we have health issues. We have settling in issues. We have misunderstandings. We have... I, yeah, there's lots of problems. And basically, it's up to the employer to solve those problems or try very hard. We have workers running away. What happens when a worker runs away and all the public servants are not at work on a Saturday? and you're ringing all around Australia trying to find your worker. You know what I mean? There's lots of problems, and that, and that is very much part of our role. And I, I have said previously that it would be really nice to have um, a coordinator available, whether it's provided by the sending countries per country in Australia, so that when you have these issues that are cross-cultural and we're not really... I mean, we're getting better at it, aren't we, as we deal with people more and understand the culture more. But it'd be really nice to have someone to talk through some of these issues sometimes, yeah. Just on that issue of absconders, uh, Sue and I bear a $10,000 liability for every one of the workers we bring into this country. The Department of Immigration can come to us and say, that worker disappeared, it cost us $10,000 to find them and send them home, hand it over. That's a huge liability if you've got 40 or 50 or 160 workers. Uh, no company that wasn't as small and, and uh, you know, we just don't know how big that problem is, so we've naively accepted it. But one of the things that frustrates me is the Department of Immigration really... Um, when the first time I had an absconder, I was on the phone within five minutes. Mm. And I said, I thought they were going to send down the police with a warrant, find the guy, put him on a plane in handcuffs. The answer I got was, Grant, there are 100,000 overstayers in Australia. We're not interested in one more. Now, that was an individual in the department that doesn't work there anymore. And I... <laughs> Have a much, I've had much better response since that time. Um, but even so, it's, it's really bad. I've got an absconder right now working in Sydney as a concreter. And, of course, he's on the phone to these people he left behind on the farm saying, oh, man, you should come and work in Sydney. 
Now, they need to jump on him hard. I know where he is, or at least my other my Tongan workers know where he is. They know he's working for his brother-in-law. They can find him. And I've offered that service to the Department of Immigration, and I hope they take it up. <laughs> uh, so just to, is it possible to get more data? How do you get more data to the products of new research? And how do you go about making sure you get good workers? The, the data that we provided, it was an extra... Other farmers were asked to provide data and didn't. And I can understand that because obviously if you're doing the research you want to have it the same over all the farms. The way I collect my data is different to the way the next fellow collects his data and then you have to manipulate your data into your form and that all takes time and you're in the middle of your busiest time of year and you're going, oh, you know, so it is, it is an... I did it because I'm really interested in the promotion of the scheme and I think that the numbers are in the data and I was prepared to do the extra because I'm just committed to the scheme. But it is a problem getting other people involved, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, if you want me to add, Stephen, just um, in terms of how that research happened, so there was some research money from ABARES, as I think uh, Jesse said, from the Bureau of Agricultural Re... whatever it stands for. Um, <laughs> Resource <laughs> Economics and Sciences, I think, yeah. Um, that became available that enabled us to do this relatively small-scale study at, at SUS, or enabled them to do this small-scale study at SUS. But um, it's been really useful for us in, in promoting the program, and so thanks very much to Sue for doing it. It's all um, right, delegated. <laughs> <laughs> um, just in terms of maybe the government perspective on issues we've had, obviously an issue that the employers have is an issue for us as well. Um, a way that really seems to work in minimising that, I think, and it has worked in New Zealand, is... Um, countries having liaison officers. So I think contacting the big and scary government of Australia when a worker has a problem, you can probably understand why they don't do that in the first instance, whether it be the Fair Work Office. They have all the numbers on their on-arrival briefing. They have all the details. They are taken through all those things and, and back in the country as well before they arrive. But um, I know Tonga are thinking of... Well, I think we're advanced, well advanced to getting some in Australia. They have them in New Zealand. Uh, Sue mentioned as many are now Felipe from, from Timor, which, uh, which is very helpful for, for East Timor as well. So that's a real, um, a real bonus when we have that. But we do spend um, a, lot, a lot of time on a fairly small number of cases, unfortunately. But. Okay, thanks a lot, Mark. Now, I know there are lots more questions, and um, I'm going to start on this side and um, then go, go around. Yeah, please. So, Anna Oh, short-term labour needs, because you, we have to we have to guarantee the six months' work. Well, I could take many, many more seasonal workers if I could do it shorter term. But I understand from the seasonal worker point of view, you've got to cover your airfare. What's the point? You know. So yeah, and yeah, and just when we find that you know, it's probably more relevant to Grant when you when they're dealing with supermarkets and you've got a big order and you've got to pull in extra people. Yeah, it's purely for short-term labour. And some of them do stay the whole season. And if they're good and they stay the whole season, we keep them on. Yeah. Sorry, there was a question down there about choosing workers too, yeah, wasn't there? Sure. And, yeah, yep. 
We, we do ask for workers back. We, any of our good returning <coughs> workers and we get them back, yeah. There was only a problem with Papua New Guinea is they had a policy of only three years participation and then because they wanted to give more people an option. And I argued very strongly that I've trained those people and that's the whole point of me using the scheme and I want them back. Yeah. Do you feel that you have a reputation now that attracts I don't. I use labour market pools personally, and I don't encourage people to deal with me directly because you do get enough random phone calls late at night at home from people who look you up on the internet anyway. And I want to keep. I want them to do the recruiting, and then it just makes it simpler and easier. And people do ring me up and ask me if they can work. We have a lot of local people who also. Can I? bring their nephew or their cousin or someone out and I say, well, you tell them to go and talk to the labour pool. Can I just explain a bit more about that, yeah, Stephen? Sorry, just the, there are, there are, so there are three ways that, or three paths from in-country that a worker can come to Australia and each of the countries have, have different ones. So they might come through a work-ready pool, as Sue mentioned, that's managed by the government. Uh, Vanuatu and Solomon Islands have agents, so they outsource the recruitment in the country to agents. And then there's direct recruitment as well. Uh, where an employer can go directly and recruiting with, with less government oversight. Our, um, our preferred, what seems to work best in the, in the Australian program is the, is the government-managed work-ready pool, although with Vanuatu's numbers coming up significantly uh, in this year, this current financial year, uh, there's a lot more um, use of, of uh, the agents going on. All right, we are running out of time, and our colleagues will go back and catch planes. So uh, we'll take one last round of questions. That's all, Rochelle. Yeah, I've got a question about the second season uh, backpackers. Uh, the National Farmers Federation seems to be very concerned that if the uh, second season backpackers um, was offered to tourism, that all, all the uh, backpackers will want us to hang out on the beach and stay in cans and not go to remote communities. So they're very concerned that there would be a serious labour supply um, issue uh, for, for the short term as well as longer term uh, backpackers. So I guess the question is, Mark, I don't know if it's on the spot, but how, if, if there was suddenly uh, a shortfall of 10,000 workers in the sector, uh, the National Farmers are saying it's 40,000, um, and they're saying this could happen in the next few weeks. Uh, how responsive could the government be in um, uncapping the um, Well, I guess that decision's well above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I suppose I would go back to, to, I think, the point Sue made, that I think what we've been told is that every farm still needs the backpackers for that shorter term and perhaps um, more sudden need for workers. Would that be the best way to yeah. describe it? Yeah. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, look, I think the seasonal worker program could be an important part of that part of any, any shortfall, but I think uh, all of our employers would still want to use backpackers. There's none of them, as I understand it. James, correct me if I'm wrong, that just use seasonal workers instead of backpackers. It's a risk management. Mm -hmm. You spread your risks. What if the government decides, no, nah, we forget this seasonal worker program, we're not doing it anymore, it's too expensive, we're not getting any votes out of it. I don't want to have all my eggs in any basket, which is my original reason for giving it a go, because I didn't know if it would work. I had no idea when I got my first group of workers. I thought, oh, well, I'll call it a donation if it's a complete failure. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It's risk management. And, and it's not only turning on the backpackers when the crop suddenly jumps out of the ground and you've got orders to fill, but it's turning them off yep. again when the crop slows down a bit because you've had a few cold days and the next 
variety hasn't come on just yet and you want to be able to say to those backpackers, well, don't come for 10 days, we'll call you. Don't call us, we'll mm. call you. And, and manage the costs that way. Okay, we've got two more questions. Uh, I'm afraid I know there are others, but that'll be... Uh, Hi, Josh Orr from Agri-Food Schools Australia. Probably for Mark, I was wondering if you could comment on the current lack of interest or take up by the aquaculture sector. Yeah, um, look, it's something we've tried very hard at um, in certain, certain regions around the country. Uh, look, the only, the only conclusion I think we can reach is that they do have enough locals. Um, we did put restrictions on, uh, on the type, of, particularly initially, on the type of uh, arrangements they could work in aquaculture, so not overnight stays on boats, those sorts of things, so on land or onshore uh, sort of operations, which does take some parts of the aquaculture industry out of, out of scope. But um, we've given it a red-hot crack and just haven't really got anywhere. Thanks. Um, that's such a previous view with the Aussie data. Um, from all of the um, um, uh, presentations, and the, the, um, this clearly is a labour market scheme, and I'm interested in your, just your perception on what is the aid element of it, and in particular, given that there are costs for the scheme, would you think it was appropriate to source those, more appropriate to source those from the aid budget or from the um, immigration department? Sorry, the employment department. I can answer that one. No, uh, well, obviously the aid budget. Look up. Just to explain, as it stands, we do we do get some funding from. So some is provided from our department, some is provided from the aid, bu aid budget. But it does. Um, it clearly has benefits to both. It has benefits to Australian industry and benefits to participating countries as well. And. Um, and particularly as the program grows and, and those countries like Tonga and Vanuatu that have big numbers, it is making a, a big difference uh, to those countries. There could be a lot more coordination and extension if the aid budget part of it was increased because then you could be doing more work with people back in country. And I had this dream that you could um, set up a citrus project in country and so they'd work for six months on my farm, they get all relevant citrus skills and then they go and work for six months back in country on a citrus project and I went down the track of trying to do this and it's still possible but <laughs> you haven't got time pardon employment and not going to follow that sort of little track but that's a track that paid could follow yeah I'm right. doing it in Laos actually and it's nothing to do with seasonal workers because that's where I ended up <laughs> we do have to wrap up just, uh, any of the panellists want to make any final remarks Rachel do you want to no, I, I think it was uh, fascinating. I think that uh, it, it, often the, the devil is in the detail, but also I think you need to listen very carefully to market participants because then you can fine-tune this. Um, I actually like that idea of what you mentioned, uh, that how you can also create business in the Pacific Island countries back. Um, fantastic. That would be a fantastic opportunity. Workers could travel between. My workers could travel between. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org.
At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.